0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 132, Operation Barbarossa. One of who knows how many. To separate Hitler from his various hatreds, from his worldview, which influenced his foreign policy, would be a big mistake. For example, the man did not hate Britain, or England, as he thought of it. He admired their production capability their wealth, their status in the world, their stout-heartedness. Yet, he didn't like Britain. So, they could be more or less left alone if they would just learn their place in this new world order, this German-centric Europe. But Hitler hated, he loathed communism and Stalin. The former was like the Jews, the cause of so many problems, problems he had to deal with as a leader. As far as the man in Moscow, he had been a reasonable, pragmatic leader, working with Germany one minute, and then the next, a shrewd, calculating, arrogant, baffling, domineering Zalmensch. See the book thief. Well, he and his country were about to get their comeuppance. To Hitler's skewed worldview, the only thing that held Britain back from concluding a sensible compromise with Nazi Germany was its hope in Russia. As long as Russia stood sharing a border with the dominant Germany, Britain would try to trick them into fighting each other, to bleed Germany, to make it weak, so the British could come in and take all that was possible. That was their way. To the mindset of Hitler, they choked you, With their navy, broke you down, then lorded themselves over you, and made you thank them for it. Well, not this time. With the West pacified, more or less, it wasn't as if Britain had the manpower to land a large force somewhere, anywhere in France, and fight their way to Berlin. North Africa in a stalemate, the Balkans firmly in German control, and Poland quiet, it was time for Hitler to unleash to reveal his greatest goal, one of the main reasons for seeking power, he would bring the Soviet Union down around Stalin's ears. He would take as much land as he wanted, as he needed, for Lebensraum, and begin the work of truly making Germany the dominant power, in every way, of Europe. That Stalin, that pig-headed Bolshevik, would go down with it, only made the thought of tomorrow that much more sweeter it was Russia's turn. During the tumultuous year of 1940, with Hitler busy overseeing, and quite frankly, enjoying the greatest of his successes to date, the Russians, besides praising every new German conquest, began to move on their own desires. On June 17th, when France, realizing it could not go on, had asked Germany for an armistice, Schulenburg, Nazi Germany's ambassador to the USSR, was invited to Molotov's office. The Russian foreign commissar offered up his congratulations on another well-deserved German victory in Germany's attempt to defend itself against the West. But then he added, It had become necessary to put an end to all the intrigues by which England and France had tried to sow discord and mistrust between Germany and the Soviet Union in the Baltic States. To move forward on this threat, the Soviet Union was sending three special emissaries to the Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And not to cover old ground in too much detail, on June 14th, as German troops entered Paris, Moscow had sent Lithuania an ultimatum that said, its government must resign, certain officials were to be arrested, and the Red Army must be allowed to send in troops to maintain the peace. Knowing it was in an impossible situation and Germany could be of no help, even if they wanted to, with the bulk of their forces in the west, Lithuania agreed. Yet Moscow found their response unsatisfactory, moved their troops in, and conquered the country. The same process then occurred in Estonia and Latvia. Within weeks, these countries held special elections, voting to ask the Soviet Union. Could they please join in the Supreme Soviet? Moscow assented to these requests. Now Stalin was on a roll. On June 23rd, Molotov again invited the German ambassador to his office. In a mood even more serious than usual, Molotov told the man that the time had come for Russia to settle scores with Romania in regards to land it had lost to that thieving state after the Great War. Russia would demand the return of Bessarabia and, as an extra defensive measure, also take, if needed, Bukovina. With these words fresh out of the Russians' mouth, images played across Schulenburg's mind. Romanian oil, food, fodder, and Hitler's reaction. The man must have shuddered at this point. On June 26th, Russia demanded from Romania the two territories. Rubentrop told Bucharest to comply, forthwith, as Germany was in no position to help them resist. It did, and Russian troops moved in. Fortunately for Germany, the Russians restricted themselves to these two areas. Hitler's oil and other supplies were safe. Yet, there had been serious consternation at OKW during these negotiations. Still, the good news was, it seemed that Stalin for all his talk and action, was not ready or willing yet to test or try to best German military might. But would it always remain so? Honestly, Russia would never get the chance, because even during this time, Hitler was seeing his way clear to justifying an attack on Russia, something he had made obvious in his writings long ago in Mein Kampf and Stalin's land-grabbing only pushed the Nazi warlord further along a road he already wanted to travel. If more proof is needed of Hitler's intent, on October 18, 1939, just weeks after an accord with Russia had been signed and Poland had been wiped off the face of the earth, the Fuhrer had told Halder that this area to the east of Germany would serve one day as a staging area to attack Russia. In fact, Hitler considered launching his attack in the east after France had fallen, but his generals had talked him out of it, saying between moving all those men back to a starting point and the weather, now that they knew Britain would not be invaded by late summer, there was not enough time. Still, Bralich, the C&C of the German army, told his leader that when Russia was attacked, the first phase, taking enough territory so that Russian bombers could not reach Berlin, would take about four to six weeks. This would require some 80 to 100 German divisions, whereas the Russians were thought to have about 50 to 75 good divisions. Later that year, in late July 1940, Britain's infuriating resistance pushed Hitler to make a decision. Gathering his generals, the Führer told them all that Britain's hope lies in Russia and America. If that hope in Russia is destroyed, then it will be destroyed for America, too, because elimination of Russia will enormously increase Japan's power in the Far East. So, the sooner Russia is smashed, the better. Now that the man who could talk for hours, trapping his soldiers, who had to endure these inner monologues slash tirades, had made his decision, he then envisioned how it would go. The Soviet Union would be invaded in the spring of next year, 1941. And at first, there would be two fronts. One to the south, to Kiev, and the Dnieper River. The other to the north, that would go through the Baltic states, bringing those back into the German sphere, and then on to Moscow. Only then would the two armies join. Of course, there would have to be separate special operations like the one that would secure the Baku oil fields, and put down any serious resistance. But basically, Russia's back would be broken, its armies crushed, its military production now in German hands. Call it five months of hard driving, with 120 divisions making the assault, with 60 divisions left behind for the defense in the West. Planning for this attack began on the very next day, August 1st, 1940. Involved were the Army General Staff, the operation Staff of OKW, and the Economic and Armaments Branch of OKW. This last group was also to make a study of Russian industry, transportation, communication, and oil production, which would not only help the Army create a list of targets, but would help Germany administer them after victory was achieved. For now, the code name for this operation was Aufbau Ost built-up east, and so began the transferring of men, weapons, and equipment back to German-held Poland. Of course, the Russians could not know of this, but if anyone in a Russian uniform asked, Germany was merely replacing older men, who would then go back to Germany to work. Still, the build-up and attack had to come as a total surprise so that German forces could grab enough Soviet territory so their bombers could not seriously damage German production factories. Between that goal and the worsening relations between Germany and the USSR, a Hitlerian slideshow was called for. Molotov, Stalin's right-hand man, was invited to Berlin to ostensibly clear the air between the two great powers. In reality, Hitler was going to use his powers of persuasion to get the Soviets to focus their attention and further desire for land to the south, away from their western borders. And yet, the meeting turned out to be a complete bust of gigantic proportions. Molotov had already skewered Ribbentrop, the Nazi foreign minister, with detailed questions about Germany sending troops through Finland to help supposedly secure northern Norway. In truth, this was to be another jumping-off point when the attack started. The Russian Foreign Minister also left the German Foreign Minister speechless with his questions about the Three Powers Pact of Germany, Japan, and Italy that was signed in late September. When Ribbentrop found his normally arrogant voice, it spewed forth the party line that this pact was aimed at American warmongers. Should the U.S. enter the war, they would automatically be facing three determined countries already on a war footing. The pact would hopefully keep the Americans preaching but not practicing actively supporting Britain. Molotov then tore his German listeners to shreds when he reminded them that the secret protocol of the Soviet German non aggression pact stated that each side had the right to see and approve beforehand any international agreements made by the other. Of course, there was no answer for this, as the pact was really directed against Soviet Russia. As the members of the World War II podcast will know in great detail, that by the time Molotov came to Berlin in November of 1940, the Soviet Union and Japan had already had several bloody border disputes, the largest one being in mid-1939, which lasted for months and saw the deaths of tens of thousands of Japanese and Russian soldiers. That the Soviets had won was not the point. They were fresh from defending their borders in the Far East against Japan, who had just signed a treaty with two European powers. How were they not supposed to think this was about them? When Molotov with detailed instructions from Stalin, met Ribbentrop on November 12, 1940. The first day, he was mostly quiet. He was saving his fire for Hitler. But de Fier, who hadn't heard the word no since 1933, believed he could handle this minister. Well, he was wrong. The Germans spoke in terms of landscape. The Russian only spoke and asked questions of dabs of paint. He wanted details. The Germans spoke of the future, when they and the Russians would have the delightful job of dismembering the British Empire. The Russian spoke of the here and now, and would no be moved. Hitler's mood got ugly, which scared every German in the room. Molotov reacted by speaking even more softly, but his direct questions never changed. Why were German troops going through Finland, Why were there more German troops in Romania, and what was the real reason for the pact with Italy and Japan? Switching to defense, Hitler chose to run out the clock on the two days Molotov was in Berlin. Ironically, each heated session ended when both parties had to head for the bunkers, as British bombers would soon be overhead. On the second night, during a reception held at the Russian embassy, Hitler didn't bother showing up. The night and the festivities ended when the party-goers were in another bunker, and Molotov turned to Ribbentrop and said, If Britain is beaten, whose are these bombs which fall? With this meeting, Hitler's hatred of Russia and Stalin, never forget that, grew. In early December, Hitler called for the army general staff's plans for the invasion of Russia. Halder and Braulich produced their papers, but only after haranguing these two generals For hours did their leader approve the plans. The Russian army was to be annihilated. General Dietl's Mountain Division, currently in Narvik, would be sent to Finland to attack the Soviet Arctic area. Sweden would allow this crossing and eventually join in on the attack against Russia. General Halder's private diary referred to this monumental attack as Plan Otto. But on December 18, 1940, the name was changed when written up and then signed by Hitler as Directive No. 21, Operation Barbarossa. And yet, strangely, or perhaps not, the first sentence of Barbarossa mentioned, obviously Russia, but also Britain. The German armed forces must be prepared to crush Soviet Russia in a quick campaign before the end of the war against England. This statement is rather odd, as the war against Russia was to take about five months, certainly to be over before winter. And yet, besides some bombing in Britain's south on most nights, there was no conclusive plan to somehow end the war with the British. One can only assume that, after the war against the East had commenced, and it would seem to the world that Russia was about to go the way of well, so many other countries, that Britain would sue for peace, knowing their last savior was about to fall. But this was Hitler's mindset, and thus far, the man had excelled with his international and military instincts. But just like Molotov, when in Berlin, Britain, not to mention Russia, would not play their parts of the script, as de Fuhrer had written it for them. The attack was to start on May 15, 1941 and had contained such detail that few changes had to be made between the writing of it and its start. Barbarossa spoke of German armor wedges cutting deep into Soviet territory, and again for the need of wiping out, not capturing, most of Soviet Russia's armed forces. German forces would leave Finnish and Romanian territory and launch themselves at specific targets. German and Finnish forces would progress to Leningrad cut Russian rail lines, take nickel mines, and capture the ice-free ports of the Arctic Ocean. Of course, Sweden had not said yes to these forces coming into their territory, but Hitler was sure they would comply. And when was the last time he had been wrong? Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination, with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, YahooFinance.com. The number one financial destination, YahooFinance.com. That's Yahoo Finance. It would be the massive Pripit marshes that would dictate the two German armies' lines of attack. One would drive through the Baltic states to Leningrad, the other would travel just south of the marshes through White Russia, and then turn north to capture any Russian forces fleeing from the first group. After that, their target would be Moscow. The loss of the capital would not only serve to demonstrate Germany's victory, but the city was also the main center of railways and armaments production. The 3rd Army Group would stay further south of the Pripet Marshes, travel through Ukraine, and make for Kiev. Any Russian forces west of the Nipper River would be engaged and destroyed. This army group's right flank would be protected by a mix of German and Romanian forces that would head for Odessa and then to the Black Sea. After this was accomplished, their goal would be the Donitz Basin. There was located roughly 60% of Russia's industrial might. Thus, Russian forces would be destroyed. Their ability to transfer men and communicate to react to German aggression would be destroyed. The rest would be mopping up operations, again, on a massive scale. And as the Germans were not bringing enough food for any prisoners they did happen to capture, who might surrender before being wiped out, well, that would make the mopping up that much easier. It must be kept in mind that besides Dunkirk, and even that was a German victory in almost every sense, each time Hitler wrote a directive, his plans were followed out, by a well-trained and equipped, highly motivated army, and victory had always been his. So, it would seem that, for all those of this party, that here too would be just another German victory, just on a much larger scale. In fact, for Hitler, he probably viewed this as his magnum opus, his great work, and great deed to the world, for getting rid of such a menace. But as we have seen, the interim would not be easy for the man in Berlin. First there was the slippery Franco of Spain, who made promises, but his price was too high to enter the war. Then there was the clouded mind of the aging Pétain, who would not give Hitler what he wanted most, Vichy's active participation in a war against Britain. But the crowning, inglorious, painful, embarrassing, stumbling part of Hitler's personal foreign policy was that of his partner, his one-time hero, Mussolini. Not only did Il Duce need saving in North Africa, but also in Albania and Greece. Hitler recognized that, yes, the Balkans had to be secured, so the British could not use it as a starting point. But regarding the Allies, Der Fuhrer maintained, with justification, that the continent was safely in German hands. There are those that claim that Hitler's desire to see that not only was Mussolini rescued, but that the Balkans and Crete were in German hands lost him valuable time for Operation Barbarossa. There are others that claim that the lost four or five weeks did not affect what was to come for the Wehrmacht that winter of 41. But the German generals firmly believed or at least expressed that belief that the loss of time cost them the war, after surrendering at Nuremberg. Either way, Yugoslavia, Greece, and Crete were now secured, and the attack on Russia was pushed back to June 22, 1941. So the German staffs made their detailed battle plans, while the soldiers were moved to the east, along with their equipment. But this was not to be just another offensive, another victory, Hitler had his own axe to grind against the Soviet Union and Stalin. Calling his generals together in early March of 1941, he informed them all that the normal rules of warfare would not be applied to Russia. Hitler started with saying that this war could not be conducted in a knightly fashion, as this was a battle of ideologies and racial differences. There would have to be unprecedented harshness. And this is coming from the Nazis. Certainly so for the commissars, as they were the priests of communism. They were to be killed out of hand. But the German soldiers would not be breaking the law. Russia had not signed the Hague Convention, and so had no rights under it. The German generals would react to this after the meeting, and told their commander-in-chief, Field Marshal Browdich, that they would not go along with this. But the field marshal never said anything to Hitler, and during the war, his order was mostly carried out. But if the German generals were angry over the commissar order, they would certainly have felt revulsion for what was coming next. Heydrich Himmler, the man who ran Hitler's secret police, the SS, would, once an area was secured, send his men in to go to work. What that meant was not to be the concern of the Wehrmacht. In fact, once Himmler's men entered an area, no German soldier was to go there unless given permission by the SS. In short, the SS would root around for spies and for partisans and liquidate them. The SS would normally find it necessary to liquidate an entire town if a partisan was found there. It was considered to be more thorough. Goering was to have a hand in this pot as well, His men would be responsible for the exploitation of the country and the securing of its economic assets for use by German industry. In summation, Russian troops were to be killed or captured. Then Himmler would move in and handle any security issues, mostly by killing everyone suspected of anything. Then Gehring's men would come in and take everything of value. But last of all, there were not only plans not made to feed the Russian people or captured soldiers, but there were specific plans made to take all food possible from the conquered people, thus starving millions in the process. However, if they wanted to migrate to Siberia, that might be considered. But things are never perfect for a dictator, even one who planned on ruling all of Europe. While relaxing at the Berghof above Berchtesgaden, over the Alpine Mountains, Hitler received news that not only shook him to his core, but threatened his entire operation against Russia. The surprise element of his attack was vital, because he needed Russia to fall quickly. Because if it didn't, well, Russia did have the largest army in the world. On May 10, 1941, Hitler was told that a loyal confidant Since 1921, the man who was only behind himself and Goering to rule over the Nazi Party, and thus the greater German state, Rudolf Hess, had taken a plane and seemed to be on his way to Britain. Why? To bring about peace between Germany and the British Empire. At that moment, there was so much unknown to Hitler. What would Hess discuss? Would he bring up Russia? Would he talk of special Nazi operations being conducted by the fanatic Himmler of the SS? The truth, sadly, was much more pedantic than anything Hitler could envision in his nightmares. Hess, it seems, had grown bored with running the Nazi state, what with all the attention and excitement on those prosecuting the war for their leader, and had decided for himself By himself, to show his loyalty to Hitler and his importance to everyone else in the Nazi Party by single handedly bringing about peace between Germany and Britain. The tale is bizarre, but does not play a significant role in the invasion of Russia or the rest of the war in general. Just a few facts will suffice to clearly demonstrate the mindset of many of the upper circles serving Hitler. It's a wonder they did so well for so long. Rudolf Hess had taken off in a Messerschmitt 110 fighter plane. He planned on flying to Scotland and bailing out, which he did, and then landed near the home of the Duke of Hamilton. They had met at the Olympic Games in Berlin in 1936. The Duke was brought to the prisoner who said he was now ready to talk. He was here to save Britain, Germany was going to win the war, but Britain still had a chance to survive if Germany was given a free hand on the continent. Britain's reward for their collective wisdom was that they could retain the empire. Of course, Churchill's government had to go. Winston, every German officer knew, had been planning this war since 1936. Oh, and he wanted to be treated like an ambassador, with immunity from the king. It didn't quite go that way, and Hess spent the duration of the war as a prisoner. As for Barbarossa, Hess knew very little, and certainly didn't know, that the greatest battle of the war was about to commence. It is still just beyond credulity that Russia was surprised by the German attack. Had not the Nazis launched surprise attack after surprise attack... Any war between Germany and Russia would not come gradually as relations deteriorated. That was not the M.O. of the Germans, nor the nature of Blitzkrieg. Still, Stalin tried. He tried mightily, even taking over the job of repairing relations between the two into his own hands. Throughout the first half of 1941, the Russians complained of German troop movements to the east, of Germany's invasion of the Balkans and Crete. And then came Russian compliance. In April, Stalin accepted Germany's position concerning various border disputes with Russia. Russia vastly improved its ability to send otherwise blockaded raw materials to Germany. The same went for the delivery of food to Germany. In fact, Stalin was doing everything he could to demonstrate the advantages of maintaining close relations with Soviet Russia. But he was wasting his time. Then came the rumors of an imminent German attack. This was followed hard upon by German industrial firms withdrawing contracts with Russia. But again, Stalin took this as a sign of German unhappiness. Nothing more. Clearly, this was Molotov's fault for his tough negotiating tactics. No more Stalin would be handling such matters himself. Molotov was kept on as the foreign commissar, but Stalin took for himself the position of Chairman of the Council of People's Commissars. Basically, he was now the Prime Minister of Soviet Russia. And from this position, he would salvage the two countries' economic and political relations. But again, the question begs to be asked, how did Stalin miss this? Germany had moved massive amounts of troops into Romania And Hungary, and on their side of the Polish border. German shipments of weapons and equipment to Russia had fallen behind of late. Even the US warned Moscow in late March from a reliable German source. Newspapers from all over the world wrote of a potential war between the two countries. Who else could Germany invade? But for all this, Stalin, who had lied and deceived so many to get where he was was now lying to himself, probably because he wanted to believe the lies. It was certainly preferable to the alternative. Even homicidal mass killers avoid places in their minds or gut instincts they do not want to hear from. During the night of May 21, 1941, Molotov invited the German ambassador, Schulenburg, to his office. The Russian started complaining again of border violations of German aircraft. Why, he was asking, was Germany so dissatisfied? Schulenberg did not have an answer. He knew even less than Hess. But his eyes were about to be opened. Waiting for him in his office was a radio message from Ribbentrop, his superior. The ambassador was to destroy all cipher-related material, as well as his radio sets. Then he was to give Molotov The following declaration. This final note, written by Hitler and Ribbentrop, demonstrated just how good two unbalanced minds could get at something after having written so many letters like this before. Germany could no longer tolerate Russia's attempt to undermine German security. Clearly, Russia was siding with Britain and trying to bring down the peace loving German state. Well, Germany would not tolerate it. The note ended with, the Fuhrer has therefore ordered the German armed forces to oppose this threat with all the means at their disposal. This was all too much for the more than less honest Schulenberg, who had tried to maintain and indeed improve relations between the two countries. From him, there would be no snappy lines that would go down in history. That was beyond him. He simply read the note to the foreign commissar. But Molotov replied, It is war. Do you believe that we deserve that? But if we may, just for a moment, move from the center ring of Hitler's circus, there was a sad, pathetic sideshow unfolding as well. Just as with France, Hitler had not told any of this to his comrade Mussolini, mainly because he did not want to share in the glory of the upcoming victory. Yet, now that it was the eve of battle, discretion called for a heartfelt note to be delivered at 3 a.m., just 30 minutes before the German guns along a thousand-mile front from the Baltic to the Black Sea opened up. The note, of course, spoke of Britain, that she was beaten, but there was one thing keeping her in the fight, Russia. Stalinist Russia had to be brought low to show the island nation her true dilemma. What's more, Hitler could not fully focus on Churchill's warmongering with Russian forces to his rear. This war, as had so many others, was being forced upon him. Italy would not be called upon to help in this endeavor, but Mussolini might want to build up his forces in North Africa and near France, just in case the latter betrayed them. This, Hitler knew, would give the land-hungry Il Duce something to focus on, and perhaps appease him for, yet again, being left out. Near the end of the note, Hitler wrote, Whatever may come, Duce, our situation cannot become worse as a result of this step. It can only improve. At 3 a.m. June 22nd, this letter was given to Foreign Minister Ciano by the German ambassador. He called upon his father-in-law, the father of Italy, waking the leader, who was resting at his summer palace. Not quite awake yet, but certainly angry, he had never been awoken by Berlin before. Mussolini grumbled, not even I disturbed my servants at night. But after Ciano told him the upshot of the note, the leader was fully awake, and for his first official act of the day, June twenty-second, 1941, he declared war on Soviet Russia. That Sunday morning at 3.30 a.m. local time, the German forces, some 3 million men, advanced. The closest bridges were taken intact. Hundreds of Soviet aircraft were obliterated while still on the ground. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. As Hitler told his generals, when Barbarossa commences, the world will hold its breath and make no comment.